How's everyone this morning? So I've been getting into basketball lately. Not uh, playing. I gave up that fantasy a long time ago. Uh, they made a movie about me. It's called White Man Can't Jump. And uh, my character was played by Woody Harrelson. Um, but uh, around Easter, we had a newbie join us and uh, she's a pro basketballer from uh, the US. Um, you'll probably notice her. She's tall, like me. And uh, so uh, we've been getting a little crew along, going to a few of her games, ch cheering her on, much to uh, Neil Watson's uh, chagrin. Um, long story, haven't got time to go into that this morning. But uh, I gotta tell you, watching basketball, when you have a, you know, kind of a vested interest in the outcome, it's stressful. Very, very stressful. I think about it, you know, in comparison to soccer. Watching soccer, even if you do have a vested interest in the outcome, it's not very stressful. Soccer, with all apologies to my wife's Italian dad, who lives and breathes soccer, it's, I played it for 16 years, but as far as watching it goes, it's pretty subdued. You can be watching soccer and go for a bathroom break, and you come back and you say to the people, did I miss anything? No. You can get up, go make a coffee, you come back in, don't miss anything? No, not really. Uh, you go, go down the grocery store, do your shopping, come back, anything happen while I was away? No, no, no nothing particular, you know. In fact, the only time, ironically, that soccer gets stressful is when it ends in a very dull draw, but it's a sort of, uh, there's something on the line match where they have to have a penalty shootout. And the penalty shootout, that's when it really gets exciting. And, uh, but basketball, it's stressful, stressful. We went last night, Neil Gibb and uh, Caleb and myself went down, watching Emily's team, stressful. End of the first quarter, scores were level. Oh, so stressful. End of the second quarter, halftime, scores are still level. So stressful, so stressful. And I'm like, Neil, get the paddles ready, man. This heart could give out any minute now. I'm, I'm hanging in by a very thin thread, so stressful. And, uh, and then they come back out, in the third quarter, and within a few minutes, they were ahead by 20 points. I'm like, what just happened? Are these the body doubles? Did they bring them out from the locker room? They, they, they left like the A team in the locker room, bring them out in the second half? No, exactly the same team on both sides come out that had been going toe to toe, point for point in the first quarter, the second quarter, and yet all of a sudden, jumping into the third quarter, they, they, they break out to this 20 point lead. Well, here's the thing, sports commentators will tell you, and Caleb uh, was uh, pr uh, promising me last night that he was the expert commentary in our team. He will tell you that the difference wasn't about the players, but the difference that caused this game to swing is this thing called momentum. And in fact, if you're watching uh, basketball in, in the US or watching the US commentary, when a team kind of starts to get ahead, the commentators will, will often say, they've got the big mo. And it's this idea that, that the same team playing the same opposition, when they've got momentum, things can shift. You might not be a basketball aficionado. Maybe tennis is your thing with Wimbledon coming up. Same thing can happen. You can see these two players, you know, they, they're good to have even gotten to Wimbledon. And one guy can be down two sets to love. The other guy is just crushing him. Boom, 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 boom. You think, man, is the other guy even awake? And, and, then, and then all of a sudden, 
The, the other guy comes back and wins the third set and sometimes the fourth set. And, and again, same players, same circumstances, but this, this mystical thing called momentum literally starts to change the game. Did you know that momentum is actually a God word? You may have heard about it in sports. You may have heard about it in business. It's actually a God word. I wanna show you this morning from uh, something that Luke recorded in Acts. You can open your Elevate app if you have that. I'm gonna take you straight there uh, this morning. Something Luke wrote around the early church and he was talking about or recording about a guy named Saul. Now, Saul was a Jewish religious leader who, who was... Uh, uh, famous at the time and famous in the region for actually hunting down and, and killing Christians. In fact, he was an eyewitness standing by in, in, in physically in the place where uh, Simon, one of Jesus' first followers, was actually um, stoned to death. Saul was actually there, part of this thing happening. And uh, Jesus met him and Jesus changed everything in his life revealed himself to Saul, caused him to go blind temporarily, but, but directed Saul to go to this particular village and promised that another guy would meet him there, a man of prayer would meet him there. And uh, you can read it around this story for yourself. But um, in Damascus was the town. Uh, this man of prayer came that Jesus had sent to meet Saul and prayed for Saul and, and Saul's uh, blindness which they described as scales fell off his eyes and he could see, he'd seen Jesus and, and now he could see the world in wonder. We just sung about that. He saw the world differently. He saw the world through the lens of Jesus' eyes. People who'd been persecuting, he now recognised that they knew the truth. They knew the way and he, was getting, he got on board with that. Had this conversion experience and uh, he was hanging out with those early followers of Jesus and Luke records this episode in that moment in history, Saul spent a few days getting acquainted with the Damascus disciples, but then went right to work, wasting no time preaching in the meeting places that this Jesus was the Son of God. And they were caught off guard by this, which they would have been caught off guard because they knew about this guy Saul, but this wasn't the Saul they knew. They knew about the Saul that they feared, that if he was coming to town, your life was under threat if you were a follower of Jesus. Not all sure they could trust him. They kept saying, isn't this the man who wreaked havoc in Jerusalem among the believers? And didn't he come to here to us to do the same thing, arrest us and drag us off to jail in Jerusalem for sentencing by the high priests? But their suspicions didn't slow Saul down for even a minute. His momentum was up now and he ploughed straight into the opposition disarming the Damascus Jews and trying to show them that this Jesus was the Messiah. Paul, having met with Jesus, started living with momentum. And I wanna talk about that very thing this morning, what it is like and how we can start living in momentum. Being a follower of Jesus in the early church was not easy. They faced political opposition, if you had a business in, that, in those days and you became a follower of Jesus, it's quite likely your business was taken from you. You faced a loss of income. If you were the only member in your family 
that decided to follow Jesus. It was quite common for your family to ostracize you, to disown you, to, to, to cause disunity in your family. And in fact, in some cases, in many cases, becoming a follower of Jesus uh, caused your life to come under threat. A lot of opposition. And with that in mind, we could almost be forgiven for thinking that if we ever heard a story of someone in that time asking themselves the question, should I continue following Jesus? Is it really worth it? If we, are, if we, if we heard someone asking themselves the question, I, I, I'd be reluctant to judge them because it's like, man, yes, it's not easy. It's not easy. But the threat of death may not be your experience as a Jesus follower, although we do have a couple of people in our church that have had that experience of becoming a Jesus follower and, and facing family ostracism, uh, death, threats. Um, that might not be your experience, but have you ever just been tempted to dial back your commitment to following Jesus just to kind of slow it down, settle down, tone it down? Not, not tempted to, to stop, you know, not tempted to, to, go, to go to become an atheist, but, but to maybe just to settle, to get stuck, to, to stop progressing. And I've seen this happen more times than I can count and more times than I care to remember. And I've seen this happen. I've seen people get stuck because of circumstances, Things didn't go the way they thought they would go. Things didn't turn out the way they hoped they would turn out. And so they got disappointed and discouraged and, and got stuck. I've seen this happen with people who face opposition and they considered that the opposition wasn't, facing the opposition wasn't worth it. And so they just kind of pulled back. Again, didn't necessarily become an atheist, but they just got stuck. They just settled. Some of them, it, Jesus was calling them into something that, they, they, that was unknown for them new territory, new step, a new, a new step of faith. And they, they, they were reluctant to take that step of faith because of the fear of the unknown. And so they settled for comfort and familiarity instead of progress in doing what Jesus caused them to do. And like it was with the early church, I've seen some people start to follow Jesus and instead of life getting better for them, life actually got worse for them. And, and in those situations and circumstances, I've seen people just scratch their heads and think, what on earth have I done making this decision to follow Jesus? And if that's you, if you've ever been tempted to stop and to settle, if you've ever faced opposition and you didn't know what to do with it, if you've ever asked yourself the question, is going forward following Jesus really worth it? If you've ever asked yourself that question, then I've got a letter in the Bible for you. It's called Hebrews, and it was written to the early Jewish Christians, those people who were raised in the Jewish faith. And like Saul, who became Paul, became followers of Jesus out of their Jewish faith. This was written specifically to them. And it was written specifically to them as an encouragement that, hey, gang, Jesus is better. 
Jesus is better than this list of rules you've been trying to follow. Jesus is better than the animal sacrifices you've been doing to try and please God. Jesus is better than anything, any of the ways you used to live. But I get it that it doesn't mean Jesus following Him is easy. It doesn't mean that it's not gonna get complicated. It doesn't mean that you're gonna get opposition. It doesn't mean that you're not gonna face difficult circumstances, but I want you to keep going. This was the tone of the letter written to the Hebrews. Keep progressing, keep moving. Don't go back to your old life. And as the writer's writing this, and I call him the writer because we don't actually know who wrote this letter to the Hebrews. But as the letter, as, as the, the, the writer's writing this, he gets to chapter 11. In chapter 11, he starts to really zero in on this concept of faith. And he tees off in chapter 11 by writing the fundamental fact of existence that's a strong statement, is that this trust in God, this faith is the firm foundation under everything that makes life worth living. Again, people that were discouraged, people that were wondering if they should keep going following Jesus, he's writing this to encourage them. No, no, this faith that you have, this faith that you profess, this faith that's causing life to be challenging for you, to cause opposition to come your way, it is the foundation that makes life worth living. It's our handle on what we can't see. The act of faith is what distinguished our ancestors and set them above the crowd. And then he starts riffing on these giants. Some people call it chapter 11, the hall of faith. Starts riffing on these giants. He's writing to the Jewish people. They would have been brought up learning everything about these giants. These giants of faith like, like Moses. These giants of faith like Abraham. These giants of faith like Sarah and Joseph. And he, and he gives them a shout out and he gives them a little explanation. And he goes one, two, the next one, the next one, the next one, bam, 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 bam. Then he he goes, and then there's all these others that I don't even have time to go into it. And he just kind of names them without giving them an explanation and a big shout out because, because there's just so much and their faith. And it, but, I, but I better give them a mention. And then, and then he just gives them a name, Gideon and, and, and Joseph. And then, and then he, could, and he goes, actually stuff it. And he starts telling more people and telling the whole story about them again. He's like, wow, come on, am I gonna do this? I'm gonna do it properly. And every one of them, the, the, the credit that he gives them, the shout out that he gives them, was their faith, the thing that distinguished them, that the writer writes, that, that set them apart, that set them above, was their faith. And you know what? You don't even have to be a follower of Jesus to have heard of some of those heavyweights. Moses led the people out of Egypt, held up his hands and, and, and parted the sea and, and, and through they went. You know, Hollywood got a hold of that decades ago. It's big stuff. People have heard of these, these, these heavyweights and Noah, People have heard of him. But the, the, the thing we need to remember is that those heavyweights were normal people like you and I who were just doing life. At a point in time, God tapped them on the shoulder and, and called them forward called them to make progress. And yeah, we read about them now, but the only reason we read about them is because they said yes. The reason we read about them is because their faith caused them to respond and caused them to move. The fear of the unknown, the, the, the self-doubts that they had, that, that caused them sometimes to go, oh God, are you really sure? And, and, and when they took the step, 
when they said yes, when they made the progress, God did incredible things in them and through them. And we read about them now. They faced opposition. They faced challenging circumstances, but they kept moving. And my question to you this morning is, will you keep moving? Some of you are already moving. So the question applies to you, will you keep moving? And some of you maybe this morning, having rolled in here, you actually, if you're honest, maybe you're feeling a little bit stuck. Maybe you've settled a little bit. And so I wanna stick a rocket up you this morning and, and, and cause you to ask the question, will I get moving? Will I resume the journey? And the writer of Hebrews, he leaves some clues hidden in plain sight as to how we can live with momentum. In this hall of faith, chapter 11, he's given shout outs, shout outs, shout outs, shout outs. And then he writes verse six, and I wanna hit that, but then he continues with the shout outs. You can read it, it's epic stuff. Almost every one of the shout outs Hollywood's made a movie about, and sometimes several, it's amazing. Verse six, it's impossible. I could preach a whole message just on that, just those two words. It's impossible because if you've read some parts of your Bible, you've read that all things are possible and yet the writer's saying, no, there's something that is not possible. There's something that's actually impossible. Oh, really? Yeah, I'll tell you what it is. It's impossible to please God apart from faith. And why? (laughs) Because anyone who wants to approach God must believe that both that he exists and that he cares enough to respond to those who seek him. It's impossible to please God by doing everything in your own strength. It's impossible to please God by doing life your own way. It's impossible to please God by doing things that are comfortable. It's impossible to please God by settling and not moving. And then here are these clues hidden in plain sight. Approach God. The very word implies movement. The very word describes progress and it's, it's forward progress and it's to somebody, it's to someone, it's to God, approach I know people who describe themselves as Christians, and I don't describe myself as a Christian, people who describe themselves as Christians who, who have stopped moving. And I'm not being judgy, you know, but I've seen it. I've been doing church leadership for a couple of decades. I've seen people who have who've, who've stopped moving. And, and they'll describe themselves as a Christian, but Jesus didn't ask us to be a Christian. He asked us to come follow him. And the question that Jesus asked, will you come follow me? It, it implies movement. Just last week, uh, the ABS re- re- released uh, our 2016 census data and some incredible percentage of Australians tick the box Christian. But Jesus didn't ask us to tick the box Christian. He asked us to come follow him. And you can tick the box Christian and not be following Jesus. It, it, just tick the box Christian is an implication of in versus out. Like you stepped over a line, yep, Jesus, uh, forgive me my sins, I'll make you my saviour, and then stop. 
like I'm in. And every four years, I'll tick the box. Jesus said, no, 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 no. Come follow me. Come follow me. I'm always up to something. Will you follow me? I'm always leading somewhere. Will you follow me? I'm always on the move. I'm always doing a new thing. Will you come follow me? My tender mercies are new every morning. Will you come let me show you? Or will, or will you get stuck? Will you stop? We've got to approach God. The very word implies movement. Oh, you know, uh, well, at least I'm not who I used to be. That's the great justification for, for, for settling. At least I'm not who I used to be. Yeah, yeah, you're not who you used to be, but you're not yet who you're supposed to be. And Jesus is still wants to do more transformation in your life. And the only way that's gonna happen is if you keep moving, keep approaching Him. Yeah, but He keeps flipping moving. Good, so move with Him. I don't know, sometimes I think I'm just paid to say obvious stuff. Don't settle for near enough. Don't settle for good enough. Don't settle for far enough. Don't settle for close enough. Ask the question, can I get closer? Can we go further? Is there more? I'm not who I used to be, but so long as I'm not who I'm supposed to be, I'm gonna keep moving. Oh, but that might upset the devil. Bloody oath, it's gonna upset the devil. It's kind of part of our job description. Approach God and believe both that He exists. Well, here's an interesting thing, believe that He exists. And the reason I say it's interesting is because remember, this author is writing this letter to Jewish Christians. They do not and would never have, not in their lifetime, not in the generation before them or the generations before them, they would not have had a concept of what we now call atheism. They would have had no concept of that. The, the question of God's existence was not a question they ever asked. They, they believed God exists, they knew He existed, and in fact, all that had changed for them is, is that they'd moved from merely believing that God existed to now also believing that Jesus was the Son of God, the one that they'd been waiting for, the Messiah. So, so it's a funny thing for the writer to say, you gotta believe that He exists because they would have all gone, well, duh, bruh, I already believe that He exists. I believe from the day I was born and my parents before me and my grandparents before them. So let me break it down. This word exists better be translated around God's nature, around God's character, not just that He is, but referring to something of who He is and really referring to His faithfulness, that, 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 that He is who He says He is and that He does what He says he will do. Because by the way, if you don't believe that about God, if you don't actually trust His nature and His character and His goodness and His faithfulness and that He's for you and that He's not against you, if you don't know or believe those things about God, don't approach Him. Why would you? You'd be terrified of Him. Or you just think it was futile. Why approach someone that's not gonna deliver on what they say they're gonna deliver? 
Why approach somebody and ask them for something that they say, yeah, I'll tell you I'm gonna give it to you, but when you come ask for it, I'm gonna go, and nah, 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 you're not gonna have it. I get it. So all of this has, it comes gift wrapped together in one very clear package. We've gotta approach God both believing that He can be counted on and that He cares enough to respond. And I said this earlier, in case you missed it, this is where I've seen some people get stuck. is they either don't believe that God cares enough to respond, because it's one thing to believe God exists and that He listens to us, but is He gonna actually do anything about that? Is He actually gonna give out something from that? Is He actually gonna say what, do what He says He's gonna do? And I've seen people get stuck. I've seen people who haven't had some prayers answered. And by the way, I don't know why God doesn't always answer our prayers in the way that we want him to. I think he does always answer them. And I've said this before. He says, yes, no, or not yet. There's always an answer, but it's not always the answer we're hoping for. And I've seen people get discouraged when God hasn't answered their prayers in the way they've thought he was gonna do that. I get that. One thing, when you read this hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11 and these heavyweights, the writer makes the point that all of them, ready to have your mind blown, all of them received the promise that God had given them. All of them, all these Moses and Noahs and Josephs and Sarahs and Gideons, all, Isaac, all of them received, all of them received the, the promises that God had made to them but not all of them came to fruition in their lifetime. That, 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 that in some cases, it wasn't until after they had passed that God's word finally came true in the next generation. And man, I could riff on this for hours. I could riff on this to parents that, 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 that the legacy you leave in your children is more important than what you've merely established for yourself in your generation. That, that your children, their, their, their floor needs to line up with your ceiling. And they build on the legacy, the vision, the dream, the prayers you've prayed for them that they didn't even know you were praying. I could riff on about this to church leaders. Have a cathedral-sized vision for your church. Cathedrals take centuries to build and they were never completed in the lifetime of the original architect or the first building crew. That, that God is faithful. God's word comes true. God does what He says He's gonna do, but He doesn't always do it how we expect it or when we expect it, but we can approach Him knowing that He is faithful and that He cares enough to respond. But here's the qualifier. To whom does He respond? To those who seek Him. Faith is not a passive thing. Well, if it's God's will, Oh, if God wants it to happen, it's gonna happen. <clears throat> yeah, there's a whole other thing, Neil. I'm probably, I'm gonna, uh, it would be. Uh, mm. 
God loves it when we ask him stuff. God loves it when we approach him. God loves it when we seek him out. And this idea of seeking him, this idea of approaching him, it's not a one-off thing. It's about progress. It's about consistency. It's about every day, in every way, approaching him, seeking him, trusting that he's faithful. Maybe 15 years ago, um, one of the, the books that God used to kind of get under my, on my radar and shape some of my leadership philosophy is a book called Good to Great. And the author of that is, a, is actually a business uh, researcher. And the, and the premise behind this book is, is, is his name, Jim Collins is the author. And Jim Collins and his team went about researching a group of companies that for several decades had been good companies. Companies probably you've heard of, good companies, getting good profits, good return on the investment for shareholders. And then upon studying them, at some point in their, in their history, they went from good to great. Their, their, their share price, their profit just went hockey stick growth. And they sustained that hockey stick growth for, for another several decades. And so Jim Collins and his team went around to look behind the curtain of what the jimmy happened to cause these companies that were already good companies to go from good to great. And the book unpacks those lessons. But one of the things he talks about towards the end of this book is the concept of momentum. And he uses the analogy of a flywheel. Now, like you, I had to Google flywheels, basketball and mechanical things and neither in my wheelhouse. Uh, a flywheel, well, let me give you <laughs> one of the better examples of a flywheel. The, 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 the wheels at the back aren't flywheels. They're just railway carriage wheels. But this big hulking thing at the front is a flywheel. If that wasn't there, if this was just normal rail carriage, then getting that thing moving, it's, it's you know, it takes a little bit of energy, but, but, it, but it's very doable. But to get that big flywheel moving is, is nearly impossible. Just to get it started, there's so much inertia just baked into that flywheel. And so it requires consistent nudge, 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 nudge nudge, just to get it started to turn over. But you keep nudging it and the guy's stoking it, keeps nudging it, keeps adding fuel, keeps adding energy, keeps adding attention, keeps moving, keeps working at it, keeps progressing. And this flywheel starts to turn faster and faster and faster and faster to at some point, it would be described that that flywheel now has the big mo. But if you go back and ask this carriage driver, when did that momentum kick in? What was the thing that caused it? He would say to you, it wasn't any one thing that caused it. It was the accumulation of repeated energy, repeated movement, repeated application that eventually caused momentum to kick in. Well, this was the very thing that Jim Collins' team found out about these companies, uh, surveying them. When you went from good to great, what was that thing? What was it that caused? And they say, no, no, it wasn't one thing. It was nudging with this, 
alongside nudging with that, alongside nudging with that, alongside nudging with that and doing it over days and weeks and months and years and decades that eventually, eventually, often after the founder of the company had long since started popping his clogs, eventually these companies had momentum, not always in their lifetime, but not attributable to any one thing or any one moment in time, but this constant. And I'm thinking to myself when I'm, when I'm praying about this message this morning, man, this sounds super familiar when you read one thing that Jesus said. He said to His people, I want you to ask, I want you to seek, and I want you to knock. And I don't want you to do those things just once. I want that to be the pattern of your life. Keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. In fact, He kind of describes that, that we're meant to sometimes knock the flipping door down. I keep knocking and no one's answering. Knock it down. I keep asking, no one's listening. Shout louder, don't stop shouting. Keep shouting until someone answers. And not till they just, just till they answer, till they give you the answer that you're looking for when your heart and your motives are pure and aligned with God's motives. So if you're stuck this morning, I really hope this is an encouraging word for you that you have a God that you can trust, that wants you to approach Him, that is who He says He is, that does what He says He's gonna do. And that our job is approaching Him, not just once, it's to keep approaching Him, keep seeking Him, keep asking, keep knocking. And, and, and in doing that, that you'll see yourself get unstuck. It might not be today. I don't have a magic wand. It might be today though. It might be tomorrow. It might take a week. It might take a month. It might take a year. It might take a decade. It might take a lifetime. It might not happen even in your lifetime, but we're to keep moving, keep following, keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. And if you're already moving, if you're already living a journey of following Jesus, then this morning, this Word to you is keep going. You will face opposition. Keep going. Circumstances won't always go your way. Keep going. It's, Jesus is always better. You're not who you used to be, but you're not yet who you're supposed to be. There's more transformation that God's got with you. I said this before. I said this in a church last week. Blew a few people's toupees off. I'm gonna say it again this morning. If you're not dead, God's not done. How about we stand? How about we make this declaration? I want this to be your declaration. I'm not gonna sing. Your prayers have been answered there, but our music team are gonna sing a declaration that you're gonna keep moving. You're not gonna settle for anything less than Jesus. Jesus.